Good morning. It's good to see everybody here at 10 o'clock. Man, I really appreciate James saying that stuff. And I'm just telling you, it has nothing to do with me. I couldn't be more thankful for the group of adults and leaders that come every week and invest in the lives of your students. And if you're one of those parents, man, just make sure you try and find out who their small group leader is or who serves and say thank you because they make an incredible impact in their lives. But I'm excited to continue in our series, Citizens, this morning. If you have your Bible or you have your Version app, you can open that up. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be closing out that chapter this morning as we continue in this series where we're just trying to identify what it really means for us to be citizens of heaven. And last week, if you weren't here, if you were, James asked some pretty tough questions coming out of the passage that we were in. You know, one of them was, would you be willing to suffer sometimes even unjustly if it meant more people were going to meet Jesus? And we saw that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi. He's writing it from jail. He's in jail for something that he doesn't deserve to be jailed for. And because of his imprisonment, he's able to share the gospel and it spreads to the entire imperial guard. And we saw that that numbered about 9,000 men. And we saw that other men were coming in and trying to take Paul's place, some with good intentions just to keep preaching Jesus, and some because they wanted the prestige and the honor and the name that Paul had for himself. And Paul was okay with all of that because Paul had this mentality about his life that was extremely different from the mentality that he used to have. And that mentality we saw was this. He said, to live is Christ. If I'm going to live on this earth, it's going to be because of Jesus. And because of what he's done for me. And so I'm going to give my entire life to living for him. And, it's, and he said to die is gain. If I die, if my life ends on this earth, it's okay. Because I get to gain the ultimate reward, which is Jesus. And so we're going to continue in and finish out this chapter 1 in an incredible passage where Paul really defines for us what it means to live. What it actually means and what it looks like to be citizens of heaven while we're here on this earth. So if you'll read along with me, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of what, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul opens up in this passage, and he really gives us something that seems pretty impossible to accomplish and to achieve. Just in the very first couple of words, he lays out this daunting task of living a life worthy of the gospel. And, and if you look at that first couple of words, that actually is just one word in the Greek language. When they translated the Bible into English for us, they had a really hard time with that one word. And so most of our translations have about six or seven words that they use to try and convey this idea. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and it says, let your manner of life be worthy. And then in the NIV, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. But that word that they're trying to translate from the Greek language, it's politio. And if you go back to its root, it means city. And if you study it all the way back and you go all the way, you'll find that what they're trying to convey, what the definition of that word in their language would have been, is to conduct oneself worthily as a citizen of the city-state. And I like how the New Living Translation says it, so we're going to read it. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. 
Now here's the thing. Paul chooses his language very carefully. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he chooses what he's talking about very instrumentally. Because here's what you have to know about that church at Philippi. The people that he's writing this letter to. They are citizens of the Roman Empire. They have recently been adopted as a colony of Rome. Now to them that was a very, very big deal. And here's why. Rome was the world power at the time. They were conquering and taking over really the world as they knew it. And so to be adopted as a colony of Rome meant that you were a part of them, you were safe, you were protected by them, you were a part of what they were partaking in, which was conquering that side of the world. And you weren't one of the people that they were coming in and burning down your villages and taking you over by force. So the the church at Philippi, the people of Philippi are very honored and very excited about the fact that they have been adopted as a Roman colony, so much so that they've changed most of their laws, their customs, and even just down to their daily lifestyle, they've changed everything to reflect their new citizenship as Romans. And so Paul is writing this, and he uses this word that describes being a worthy citizen of a city-state because he wants to remind them. He wants to remind them of this. The same way that you've changed your entire life, basically, to become and to be considered as a Roman citizen... He's reminding them, I want you to remember, you're a citizen of a place far greater now because of Jesus. You're a citizen of heaven, and your king is Jesus. And so the same way that you've changed your life to be a Roman citizen, that's the way I want your life to change because of your citizenship in heaven. Paul's trying to draw this picture to them. The same pride that they were taking in being Roman citizens, he was trying to let them know, you should take much more pride in the fact that you are a citizen of heaven, a far greater place than Rome could ever Come close to me. And so the only thing that I want to make sure we do before we get in and before we go deeper into this passage is to just look at one word and make sure that we don't trip over it. Because we have the capability, if we miss this word, to kind of miss the entire point of what Paul's trying to say here. And the word is worthy. Now in our lives, we want to be worthy of a lot of things. I want to be worthy of love. I'm married, my wife, I love her to death, and I want to be worthy of her love. I don't want her just to love me because she has to, because she said she would on our wedding day. I want to live a life that's worthy of that. I want to measure up and be worthy to that love. You know, I work with students each week in and out, and I want to be worthy of the respect and, and more importantly, the trust of the parents that send those students every week. I want them to trust that I'm going to take care of them and invest Jesus into their life. You know, we want to be worthy of honor and of friendship and of laughter. And there's a lot of things in our lives that we want to be seen as worthy. And so when we want to be seen as worthy of those things, what do we do? We work. We try and earn it. We do whatever it takes to live up to. You know, the idea of being worthy is just simply that. It's being good enough. It's being deserving. It's adding up. It's measuring up. And so we try and measure up in our lives. But here's the thing. We can, if we're not careful, think that that's the case when it comes to what God's done for us and when Paul's talking about in this passage. So if you look at this scale I have behind me, the reason that it is already to the floor and it's already tipped is because this side of the scale for us is going to represent the gospel. There is nothing weightier and nothing more glorious and nothing better than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this side's going to represent our lives, but here's the thing. The gospel is simply this. The reason that it weighs as much as it does, the reason that there's really nothing that can weigh up to it, 
is because of what it means. The gospel is simply this. We are sinful people because when God created man and woman in the garden, they chose sin over God's good gift to them. And because of that, we were all born into that sin, enemies of God. But instead of God, who he would have been totally right and just in just wiping them off the face of the planet, when they chose sin over him because he loves us and because he desires a relationship with man, he set in motion a plan that he was going to send his son Jesus, his perfect son Jesus, who had never done anything wrong, to live in human flesh, to be tempted, to be tried, to suffer as we suffer, to live a perfect life, to never falter, so that he could die an agonizing, brutal, physical death on the cross. But more importantly, so that as he died that physical death on the cross, he would suffer the eternal separation that we deserved from the Father in three days. We deserve the wages of sin is death. We deserve eternal separation from a holy God who we can never live up to. But Jesus and God, because they love us, came and paid that penalty so that we could be restored to a relationship. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing that can equal that weight. But, but what happens in our lives is we tend to think that we can. You know, I grew up in church, and so for me, I always had the perspective of, what I did earned my standing with God. I had to perform and act and do certain things in order to earn my standing and to earn what God did on the cross. For some people that you're in here and you're like, I, I'm new to this church thing, I didn't grow up, that wasn't me. The Christian walk and the Christian faith can look like this thing where, well, all, all they do is they get, come to know Jesus and then they just try and repay this God who's keeping his thumb on them and making sure they're doing good things. You know, so it can look like this. We can, you know, we can come to a message like this and we can read that short passage and say, worthy of the gospel. And so in our minds, automatically we go to, okay, here we go. I got to give more and I've got to invite more people to church and I got to try and serve more and I got to try and read my Bible more and I got to try and pray more and I got to try and go to Chick-fil-A more and I got to try and do all of these things that make me a good Christian. I got to try and earn it. I got to try and wait up. I got to try and measure up to be worthy to the gospel. And I hope you see that doing any of those things didn't even make it flinch. There is nothing we can do in our own effort, on our own, that can earn the gospel, that can measure up, that can be considered worthy. So when Paul gives us this challenge and he says, walk in a manner, conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, it's seemingly impossible. But here's the thing. The only thing that can measure up to the weight of the gospel, the only thing that can earn ourselves and make us be considered worthy of the gospel is the presence of the gospel in our life. Let's see how this works. The only thing that can cause us to measure up, the only thing that can equal us out, and we'll pretend that that went balanced completely level, just for the sake of my illustration, so you can go along with me. Pretend it worked for me. The only thing that can equal that out in our lives, the only thing that can make us to be considered worthy of the gospel is the gospel. It is the only thing that can equal out with itself. And so for our lives, if we're going to walk in a way, if we're going to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, all that simply means is that we have to have the gospel present in our life every day. We have to lay hold to and claim the fact that Jesus came onto the cross and died and paid the penalty for our sins because he loves us. And that's what can allow us 
to walk worthy and conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel. Outside of that, if it's just behavior, if it's just efforts, it doesn't work. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And I love Warren Wearsby, as I was studying in his book, Be Joyful, he says, We do not behave in order to go to heaven, as though we could be saved by our own good works. But we behave because our names are already written in heaven, and our citizenship is in heaven. See, here's the thing. For me, this is a beautiful thing. I'm glad that when I was born into my family, that I didn't have to earn my way in. If I had to earn my way into my family, my parents would have probably had me out by about two years old. Like, I probably wouldn't have made it very far. I used to get double ear infections. I'd scream all the time. My dad would have probably put me up for adoption a long time ago if that was the case. I didn't have to earn my way in. I was a part of my family simply because I was born into that family. And when I had my motivation and when I had my behaviors fixated on what I wanted when I was a kid, my behaviors seemed tiresome and burdensome. And they didn't really earn me what I was trying to get. Even though I don't think it's that hard to give a kid his own basketball gym, a finished basement with a home theater, and a Mitsubishi Eclipse. Like, I don't think that's that big of a deal or much to ask for. But when my behavior was fixated on those things... It became burdensome, it became tiresome, and I never seemed to get what I was wanting. But when I realized that the thing I really needed and that I really wanted was just my parents' love and their unconditional acceptance of me. And when I realized that I had that, my behaviors were still there, reading your Bible, praying, going to church, inviting people, serving, those are all good things. Those are behaviors of people that have been radically changed by the gospel. And so when I realized that I had their unconditional love and acceptance, my behaviors turned from I'm trying to earn or get something to I'm just being thankful for the position I've been given freely in this family. It changes everything. That's how we live a life worthy of the gospel. We don't live it. We can't do it on our own. We come to this realization that only the gospel in our lives can bring us there. But then Paul continues in this passage and he explains to us what this life looks like. So if you read, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul continues to explain this conduct. Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't let it up to our own imagination. He explains in these next couple of verses what that life really looks like. And the first thing that he explains is that this life worthy of the gospel, when the gospel is present in our lives, that life looks like consistency. Paul is saying, I don't just want you to live this life. This life shouldn't just be what you live when I'm standing right over your shoulder, when I'm there with you. He's writing to this church at Philippi. He's saying, This life should be described of you whether I'm here or whether I'm far away and somebody's telling me what it's like there. That's what this life looks like. If we truly grasp and we are truly changed by the gospel every day, then our life should look the same as when we're sitting here on Sunday morning in the pews hearing the gospel preached from the stage as Tuesday morning when we wake up and all of our lives have gone crazy on Monday. The gospel has the power for our lives to look the same on Sunday as they do Monday through Saturday. And Paul's saying, your your behavior should be consistent. I know this wasn't true of me. I grew up in church, like I said, and in high school, it was the exact opposite of my life. 
I would go to church. I would do all the right things. I would say all the right things. I'd lead groups. I'd pray. I'd, and then as soon as I pulled out of that parking lot, my life was markedly different from Thursday until Sunday again when I was back in church. Paul's saying, our life, if it's worthy of the gospel, if it's a life that's truly been gripped by the gospel, it's one that's consistent. No matter who's watching, who's looking, who's near, who's far, our lives will always be described like this. A life worthy of the gospel is marked by humility. And a life worthy of the gospel is also this thing of the church. When he says, of one mind, of one spirit... Paul is reiterating, it's something we've already talked about, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. You'll see this book of Philippians, Paul repeats himself in a lot of different ways because he's really just trying to get down to a couple key issues. Paul's saying, if you want your life to be worthy of the gospel, if you're a life that's been transformed by the gospel and your life's going to be marked by the gospel, then it's a life that's going to be lived in community, in this one mind, in this one spirit. You know, remember the church, of, or the church at Philippi was started by a rich woman, a slave girl, and a blue-collar prison guard. They had no business being together. I love that as I look out from this stage, that's the same thing that you see here on Sunday morning at Cross Point City. You have different ethnic groups. You have rich and poor, young and old, man and woman. You have Auburn fans and Alabama fans. You have people that kill deers and people that paint watercolors of them. You have people that drive a Prius and people that drive monster trucks. Like, we're all different. There are some people sitting in this room that have no business being in this room together. There's no earthly reason why they would come to the same place at the same time except for Jesus and except for the gospel. And Paul's saying if your life is going to be worthy of the gospel, if you're going to live this life that lines up, then something that they're going to see, the world's going to see, one of the marks of it is going to be that you are all around this one mind and this one spirit. And that one mind and one spirit is that we are dedicated, committed, and changed radically by the gospel. People should look at this place and go, why in the world would he pray with him? Why in the world would they sit in the church with them? Why in the world would they go to Chick-fil-A as a small group and those people be near those people? That's what the gospel does. It unites us in a way that no earthly reason could. There are causes that people champion. There are things that people get together on. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, there is nothing outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can sustain that type of community for the long haul. Nothing. Causes come and go. Things come and go that unite us. But at the end of the day, a church, a life worthy of the gospel means that it is a body of believers, the church, gathering together on a weekly basis around this one thing. And then Paul continues on there and he says, and the result of that is that you're going to strive together side by side for the sake of the gospel. You're going to go out of this place when you gather together with this one mind, this one idea, this one spirit, and you're all encouraged by it and you're all together in this thing, then you will leave this place and side by side together you will go out for the sake of the gospel. It will be the thing that motivates you to go and two people that never had any business together will go and will share Jesus with this community. For us, practically what this looks like is when we gather here on Sunday and we gather in small groups and we gather around this thing that the gospel is, we will leave this building and we will go after the 260,000 people that are in a 10-mile radius that don't know Jesus or don't 
have anything to do with this church. That's what that looks like for us. When we are centered around the gospel, we get that mission and we go for that mission. But I hope you're recognizing a theme. Nothing that I've talked about so far has anything to do with our effort. We walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, and the only way we can do that is by just grabbing a hold of and clinging to the gospel. We gather together around one mind. We don't gather here because we just feel like we have to or we want to. And some of us may, but that doesn't last long. When we truly gather, when we're truly united, it's because of the gospel. And when we go out, and if we're going to accomplish that, and we're going to go after those 260,000 people, it's because of the gospel. If you continue reading in verse 28, Paul continues and he says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation that is from God. Now here's the thing. A life marked worthy of the gospel that is consumed and gripped and radically changed by the gospel, it's a fearless life. Most of us sitting in this room, and we talk about this all the time, we're not going to face at least right now, avert oppression where somebody's going to threaten your very life for believing what you believe. We don't have to gather here on Sunday morning in secret, but there are places in the world that happens. But for us, it looks like insults. It looks like marginalization. It looks like be- being seen less than because of what we believe. And we are going to face that type of oppression. And what Paul is saying here is no matter what, whether it's your life being threatened or somebody simply mocking you with their words, our faith is unshakable. If our lives are truly marked by being radically transformed by the gospel, then we are fearless. That word frightened that he talks about, it's intimidation. And he describes it if you read kind of what they were getting at. It's like a horse entering into battle that gets startled and then runs away. Paul's saying that's not us. No matter what we face, because we are in a battle, we are in a war, and we will face oppression... We will face opposition, no matter what that looks like, mocking or threatened life, we will be fearless. There will be nothing that shakes us away. And he says what that does is to unbelievers who are oppressing us, that's going to be a sign to them of their destruction. They're going to come after us and try and get us to say what we believe is wrong and what we believe is not true. And when we don't, to them it's going to hopefully cause pause in their life where they go, maybe it is true. Maybe this God that they're talking about who sent his son Jesus to save me so that I wouldn't have to face eternal separation from him, maybe that's true. Maybe that destruction and that separation that's coming one day is real. And the hope is maybe they would come to a realization in Christ. But for us, it's supposed to be a confirmation and a comfort in our salvation. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This type of fearlessness is supposed to be a comfort and a confirmation of our salvation. Because here's the thing, if you aren't alive, if your life isn't transformed and gripped by the gospel, we're not gonna face persecution, we're not gonna be fearless. If you don't believe in something, you're not going to give your life for it. And a lot of us, if you don't believe in something, you're not going to face ridicule for it. You're not going to be looked as less than for it. The only way that we can live this type of fearlessness is because we truly believe the gospel 
of Jesus. And we truly believe that it is everything. It's the only way. And in verse 29 and 30, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This one always gets people. This one gets me too, because here's the thing. We're talking about this God that loves us and this God that sent Jesus. We're talking about the gospel, which means Jesus went and faced the ultimate punishment on the cross and faced the separation that we deserved and faced all of the bad things that we had coming for us for our sake because he loves us. And so how does that same God that sent his son Jesus to save us from all of that, how does it say that he granted us, or in other words, he gifted us, he gave us as a gift Suffering. How does that make any sense? That that God would do that and then that. And Paul had this understanding, which is why he talks about it time and time again. About how suffering is light affliction for a better glory and it's temporary and it's small and it bears no weight. Because Paul understood that suffering for the sake of Jesus draws us closer to Jesus. And if it doesn't physically draw us closer to death and, and meeting Jesus, then it draws us closer to an understanding of what Jesus experienced on our behalf. Because Paul knew this, there is no amount of suffering that we will ever face on this earth that can ever compare to what Jesus suffered. Not even close. And this is coming from a guy who was beaten on a regular basis, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned. If anybody had a right to go, Jesus, what gives? Like, you called me here. It was Paul, but he understood that none of it mattered. None of it bore any weight. And here's the thing. I, I love this. I love how D.A. Carson writes about this passage. So it, it, to close out, we're almost done. I'm just going to read this to you because I couldn't say it any better way. Nevertheless, we are called to suffer like him and for him. Recall what Jesus tells his disciples in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This language, too, is shocking. To first century ears, it does not mean that we must all learn to put up with a wart or a disappointment or an impending mathematics exam. We all have our crosses to bear. No, to first century ears, this means you must take the cross member on your beaten shoulders and stagger to the place of crucifixion and there be executed in blistering agony and shame. To take up your cross means you have passed all point of possible reprieve. All point of hope that you will once again be able to pursue your own interests. You are on your way to death and a dishonorable death at that. So for Jesus' disciples to take up their cross, even to take up their crosses daily, is to say in spectacularly metaphorical terms that they are to come to the end of themselves, no matter how costly the death, in order to follow Jesus. This can seem extremely burdensome at first, but man, there's such a gift in it. This is why suffering is a gift. Because whether it is our physical lives that are taken from us, or whether it's just a life that we live on this earth being marginalized and mocked and insulted for what we believe about Jesus, here's the thing. At the end of it all, Jesus is standing right there. And here's the better thing. He went through it first. And he went through it in a way that we never could, and he went through it in a way that we would never want to experience. Jesus did it first. He's the one that suffered on our behalf. So when we suffer because of him, it is a gift because it brings us that much closer. 
Paul's reiterating one more time, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So it brings up question. If we're going to live this life that's marked worthy of the gospel, and the question is, right now in our lives, if a lost person, somebody who doesn't know Jesus, looked at our lives, would they be able to understand the gospel because of how we live? Would our lives add up? Would they look at us and then see the gospel and go, that makes sense? Here's the thing, the only way that that answer can be yes is if the gospel is present every day in our lives. If we constantly and relentlessly are preaching the gospel to ourselves, and not only to ourselves, but to this lost world around us. Because if we are gripped by the gospel, then our lives will be worthy. Not because of anything we do, but because we will live a life because of the gospel. Our behaviors will not be duties, they'll be worship. We'll gather together with people we never would and the world won't understand. We'll leave here striving together because we believe it's the good news that can save. And we'll suffer anything fearlessly because we know that the great reward is not here, but where our citizenship ultimately lies, in heaven. You guys can bow your heads. And if you're in the room this morning and, and you don't know what that's like, your citizenship still is here. It is not in heaven. And I, I pray this morning that this would be an opportunity for you to come to know and to come to a realization that God loves you very much. And I pray that right now as you're sitting in your seat, if that's you and you want to know what it costs and you want to know what it's like to become a citizen of heaven, it's really simple. God sent his son Jesus who died on a cross for your sins, for my sins, for everyone's sins. And he sent his son as a free gift. And that free gift allows us to be restored into a relationship that allows us to go home one day. If you're sitting in this room, it, it, there's no magic to it. It's simply acknowledging God is who he says he is. And Jesus did what the Bible says he did. That he thought of you. He knew your name when he came here to this earth to die. And it's just acknowledging that. It's, it's saying, God, I love you. God, thank you for that. I'm a sinner who's failed many times, who's lived as if my citizenship was only ever going to terminate here on this earth. And God, I want to come to the place where I one day will go with you and find my ultimate home in heaven. And I understand I'm going to be here on this earth, but I want you to show me what it's like to live on this earth as a citizen of heaven. And if you're in this room and you know who God is and you are already a citizen of heaven what if we all live that life what if every day we can answer yes and we could say my life is worthy of the gospel because the gospel is present in my life every day that's how God wants us to gather and because of that that's how God wants us to leave to strive together for the sake of Christ willing to suffer anything fearlessly because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us.
God, you're so good. Thank you so much for loving us like that. God, I pray that we would leave here a people marked worthy of the gospel, not because of ourselves, but because of you. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.